Well, last Sunday on Easter Sunday, we started a brand new series entitled Failure. Many of you, I'm assuming, were probably here. Uh, a lot of folks uh, go to Easter on, or go to church on Easter Sunday. Some of you may have been out of town and in other churches, or you'd visited family and uh, may not have been here, but we started a brand new series last Sunday. And uh, it's going to be a short series. It's not expected to be very long. Uh, my expectation is that we'll finish this series next, uh, next Sunday, so it's just going to be three messages or so long. But looking at the topic of failure, last Sunday on Easter, uh, we looked at a simple principle that, that God's desire is that we bring our failure to the cross and we drop our, we drop our failures there. You know, the, the cross is our drop-off spot for all of our failures. And one of the things we did last Sunday was we distinguished between two different types of failures. You know, there are those failures where we sin, right, and we fall short uh, and we uh, you know, rebel against God. You know, there, there are those types of failures. All of us have done that. Uh, but then there are the other types of failures where it wasn't really a sin involved. It was just a, a boneheaded choice, right? You know, we make a, made a, a, a dumb mistake, you know, and, and it's something we would do differently if we had the chance. It wasn't really sinful. We didn't rebel against God, but we just made a wrong choice. We made a, made a, you know, a, a blunder, and, and we failed, and then we suffered the consequences of it. So there are two different kinds, kinds of failures. And we looked at that last Sunday, that regardless uh, of our failure, if it's sin, we drop it off the cross. God offers forgiveness. If it's a blunder, if it's a mistake, a poor choice, then we drop it off at the cross, and God adds grace, and he applies the whole Romans 8.28 thing, right, where he works good things, he works all things together for good for those who love God, for those who are called together according to his purpose. And so, so we bring our failures, and we drop them off at the cross. It doesn't matter if that failure may have been a failure in the area of relationships Maybe your failure is in regards to marriage. You, know, you may be suffering today in your marriage because of failure. And, and you can't really honestly point your finger at your spouse because you know deep in your heart it's your failure that's really caused the tension, regardless of whatever that failure may have been. And so you may have suffered consequences because of failure in marriage. Maybe it's in the area of parenting. You know, we talked about that some last week, that in the area of parenting, there, there, you really may have tension in your family today. You may have real alienation with some of your kids, or you may be alienated from your parents because of failure on your part. You know, the failure can be work-related. You may have lost a job, may have lost a career, may have suffered a setback financially. Uh, you may have had a moral failure. The list goes on and on and on. But what God wants us to do is that we bring those failures and we drop them off at the cross. So then the, the logical question is, so then what do we do next? If we bring our failures and we drop them off at the cross, then what is the next step? Well, this morning I want us to look at a message entitled, Failure, dot, 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 all right? Failure dot 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 moving forward. Because you may be sitting here and you may say, you know what, Brooks, that was really helpful last Sunday. Whenever we looked at bringing our failures to the cross, we drop our failures off at the cross, and we drop them there. You know, that was really helpful. Uh, you know, I, I pulled some things out of that that was really beneficial for me. But now what do I do? Because I failed in the area of marriage. Listen, I failed in the area of marriage, but today my marriage is still in shambles and I don't quite know what to do next. Or maybe I lost my family because of my failure. And yes, I brought that to the cross and where forgiveness was needed, I've accepted that. And I've, I've, I've now tasted God's forgiveness. But what do I do next? Now, how do I move forward? Or maybe, maybe I failed in the area of finances, you know, and I made some really wrong choices and I, and I knew they were wrong when I did it, but I've still suffered. You know, I failed and, and, I, and I fell and I, I've, I've dealt with all that. God's dealt with it with me and I, you know, all that's been covered now. I've dropped it off at the cross, but what do I do next? How do I move forward? Well, that's what I want us to look at this morning specifically. And what we're going to look at here in Scripture in just a few moments is a, is a story of a man 
who many of you may, may have heard of. Most of you, I'd be willing to say, probably have either never heard of him or just don't know the simple details of his life. But he is exhibit A for what it looks like to move forward. So before we begin to look at his, at his, uh, his story, let me give you a principle that I hope you'll jot down. We're going to look at three of them today. I don't usually do that. I can only handle one at a time. You know, at a time. You know, usually that's just kind of the way I roll. Uh, so I usually only give kind of one, one principle that we unpack. But today there's going to be three, and I think they're all so closely tied together. They're going to hopefully be beneficial for you. So the first one I hope you'll jot down the principle simply is this, that failure can actually be a catalyst in our lives for a brand new beginning. That whenever we face times of failure, and we, again, we've all been there, that there is a real distinct possibility and a very, a very strong likelihood that if we drop that failure off at the cross and we deal with it, if it's sin, we've come to God for forgiveness, we've confessed it, we've turned from it. If it's just a boneheaded move that we made, you know, we hopefully have learned from it, but we bring it to the cross, we find God's grace. That if we bring our failures to the cross and we drop them there, regardless of what type of failure it is, that failure can be a catalyst for a brand new beginning in our lives. Now, what does the word catalyst mean? You know this. You studied it in school. maybe a long time ago, so let me just kind of refresh. A catalyst is basically just simply a change agent. A catalyst is something that brings about change. It can be change for good, or it can be change for bad. The word is a very neutral term. A catalyst can bring about good, it can bring about bad, uh, that, the, but the catalyst is what, is what takes place. It may be an event or it may be an object, but it is something that, that, that is involved in the mix that brings about change. Think for a second about a forest fire, okay? Say there's a forest fire that burns acres and acres and acres of land and timber, all right? You look back and you trace that back. How did it start? It started with a simple spark, let's say, and it would be that spark that would be the catalyst, right? That spark was the catalyst. It was the change agent. It was through that simple spark that ultimately an enormous uh, a forest fire would take place. That's what a catalyst is. Here in these recent days, there have been some changes in regards to cockpit security measures, for example. A very good step, I think most would probably say. What was the catalyst for that in these most recent days, the most recent changes? It was German Wings Flight 9525 that crashed, right? With issues involving the cockpit that you saw in the news. And it was those issues, as horrendous as they were, remember a catalyst can be positive or negative, it, it, it is those, that, that incident, as horrible as it was, that became a catalyst for changes that most would probably say were good changes. So when we look at failure in our lives, regardless of whether it was related to sin or just a lack of wisdom, what happens is when we bring that failure to the cross, think whatever your failure is in your mind right now, think that, that when you bring that to the cross, God can actually use that failure as a catalyst, as a change agent to bring about a new beginning in your life, okay? Now, let me just make a very important note here that we're not talking about Dr. Phil type stuff, <laughs> you know, we're not talking about chicken soup for the soul where, you know, you just kind of get a warm, fuzzy feeling, oh, my failure, it's a new beginning, and, you know, you go off and a week later, you know, you're, you're down to the dumps again. It's not that. Okay, there's a very, very important point that we need to recognize, and it's the second principle of this, that yes, failure can be a catalyst for a new beginning in life, but we have to understand that failure also, most importantly, is something that God can use to reorient our life to his lead. That many times it is failure that we experience, whether sin or whether lack of wisdom, that it is failure that reorients our life then to his leadership. Because let's be honest, if we can, when we fail, 
whether it's sin or whether it's a poor choice that doesn't relate to sin, when we fail, more often than not, isn't that related to a lack of allowing God to lead in our lives? Now, think about the failures of your life. At least for me, more often than not, where I have failed, it was because Brooks was driving the life, not God. (laughs) And when we look back at our failures in life, what we will often find, if we could connect the dots, dot to dot to dot to dot, from one failure to the next, what we'll find is there many times is a common denominator, and that common denominator denominator is that when we fail, we often fail because we did not let God find his rightful place in our lives. We steered the ship. We did not let him. And what failure does is that it becomes a tool that God uses many times in our lives to bring about a new beginning, not a warm, fuzzy new beginning, not something that wears off, but it is a new beginning that is a total change because it's the failure he uses to reorient our life to him where he is now in charge either for the first time or in the way he used to be back before we fell on our face. Exhibit A we find buried deep in the Old Testament in the book of 2 Chronicles chapter 33. I hope you'll turn there with me. 2 Chronicles chapter 33. I added it up real quickly in my head. I may be wrong because my math is not good. I think it's the 14th book of the Old Testament for whatever help that might be to you. All right. So the book of 2 Chronicles, when you get there, chapter 33. If you don't have a Bible, you can read on the overhead here in just a second as we move through a portion of this chapter, a large part of this chapter, tracing the life of a man by the name of Manasseh. 2 Chronicles chapter 33. Manasseh, I'll give you a little bit of a background to his life. How many of you have ever heard of Manasseh? Let me see your hands, okay? For most of you that raised your hands, I'd be willing to say it's been a while since you read about him. He's not one, sadly, that gets mentioned very often in many sermons or many Bible studies. And yet he is a perfect picture, I believe, in the Old Testament of what it looks like to fail, of what it looks like to bring that failure though he was 700 years roughly before Jesus would come, to bring that failure, we'll say, to the cross, to bring it to God, to own it. And he's a perfect picture of what it looks like when God uses our failure as a catalyst to chart a brand new course with a brand new beginning that reorients our life to God's lead once again. Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king of the nation of Judah, the people of Judah. Judah basically was comprised of God's people. The king was to be the spiritual leader of God's people. So when you had a king of the people of Judah, not only was he supposed to reign on a throne and provide military oversight and all the things that kings do, but primarily that king was also, even though you had others that would lead from a spiritual perspective, it would be the king that was to set the tone spiritually for the people of God. Well, Manasseh, when he took over at the age of 12 as king, didn't have a whole lot of options in regards to whether he would set a strong spiritual lead. He was 12 years old. How many of you got 12-year-olds? How many of them are ready to lead as king? Okay? All right, so that's kind of where we're, where we're going. However, our choices ultimately lead us, you know, to, uh, you know, to outcomes. And Manasseh, as he would grow in, his, in, in age and as he would grow as king, would begin to make some extremely poor choices. 55 years, Manasseh would lead the people of Judah as king. The first part of that 55 years was absolutely horrendous. 
As we pick up here in 2 Chronicles chapter 33, let's begin in verse 1, and I want you to get a little bit of a picture of what was going on through Manasseh's leadership. Beginning in verse 1, it says, Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king. He reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. He did evil. <laughs> that, that, that phrase is uh, highlighted for a reason. It's a very simple three-word phrase, but man, is it packed with, uh, with depth. He did evil in the sight of the Lord, according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord dispossessed before the sons of Israel. For he rebuilt the high places, which Hezekiah, his father, had broken down. He also erected altars for the Baals and made ashram and worshiped all the host of heaven, and he served them. Let me just give some commentary on what's taking place here. When it mentions the high places there in in verse 3, the high places were exactly that. They were elevated locations that were scattered throughout the land. And those high places were known for the worship of the false gods of the surrounding nations, primarily the, the Canaanites, right? And so the Canaanites were not God's people. They did not honor God. They did not follow God. They had their own system of worship that did not include God. They had false gods, false goddesses, and they would build these, these high places in these elevated regions. And up on the high places, they would basically engage in false worship. And in this false worship, it would involve oftentimes child sacrifice, would involve sexual immorality, involve involve a host of things that displease the Lord, and it would happen under the guise of religion. And so here's what happened, is that for Manasseh, his father had broken all those high places apart. He he basically uh, uh, taken them down for the most part, right? He had discontinued that. However, for Manasseh, when he comes in, he rebuilds the high places and then it says he also rated altars for the Baals, and he also made Asherim. In other words, these were two of the false gods. Baal was a false god, uh, Asherim a false goddess, goddess of fertility, actually, and that uh, the Canaanites would worship. And, and so Manasseh, this supposed to have been godly king, would come in, and he completely dis, uh, 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 undid everything that his father had done. He had rebuilt the high places. He had implemented the worship of false gods, child sacrifice, the list goes on and on, worship the host of heaven. Uh, If you go on further, look at the next verse, verse 4. It says, He built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, My name shall be in Jerusalem forever. He built altars for all the host of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. This is God's house, okay? This was where worship to the one true living God was supposed supposed to take place. And he knew it. And yet what he had done was that he completely desecrated God's house, and he implemented the worship of false gods and false goddesses there in the house of God. I mean, imagine that taking place today, all right? What would happen if we did that here? There would be an uproar, rightly so, all right? This is what's taking place on a much larger scale, and Manasseh is the one who is driving these changes, supposing, uh, supposed to have been the spiritual leader of the people of Judah. Let's move on to the next verse. It says, he made his sons pass through the fire in the valley of Ben-Hinnom. What, what is that? It's a reference to child sacrifice. That's what that's referring to. It says, he practiced witchcraft. He used divination, practiced sorcery, dealt with mediums and spiritists. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. Then he put the carved image of the idol which he had made in the house of God, of which God had said to David, to Solomon, his son, in this house and in Jerusalem, which I've chosen from all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever he completely desecrated everything. When you think about child sacrifice, by the way, there was a false god, the god Molech, that the Canaanites would often worship by crafting by their own hands a, a metal fabrication of this false god Molech. The way it was constructed was these 
these hands would go out. It was hollowed out in the back where they could put wood, build fire, get it blazing hot. And then they would take children as acts of child sacrifice and place them in the outstretched white hot hands of this false god that had been constructed. I mean, you can imagine the you can imagine the, the horrendous experience that must have been. This king, Manasseh, is the one that's doing it. You know, when you look in the pages of Scripture in the first part of this chapter, you see a, a picture of Manasseh's life that is um, it's not a pretty picture. Look at what it says in verse 9. We'll move a little bit further. As a, as a brief synopsis, it says, Thus Manasseh misled Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the sons of Israel. In other words, you take the pagan nations that didn't honor God and who worshipped all these false deities that didn't even exist, the witchcraft, the sorcery, the child sacrifice, the pagan worship, the idolatry, the sexual immorality. You take all of that that the pagan nations... Uh, engaged in what Manasseh did with the people of God when he supposed, was supposed to have been a spiritual leader even outdistanced what the pagan nations had done. It was that bad. Verse 10 says that God would try to get the attention of Manasseh. Manasseh wouldn't listen. So God would deal with him a different way. Verse 11 says, Therefore the Lord brought the commanders of the army of the king of Assyria against them. They captured Manasseh with hooks, bound him with bronze chains. They took him to Babylon. The nations of, uh, nation of Assyria were, and Babylon for that matter, were very good at what they did when they would take over enemy nations. When it mentions that they, uh, they captured him with hooks, probably what happened, most historians would say, is that they took an actual fish hook, as would be the custom for them when they would take over captives, and they would run it through, through the cartilage part of the front of his nose uh, you can imagine what that felt like right run a hook right through there folks when that happens you'll go anywhere they lead you and that's what they did they led him off into captivity along with his people and it was an outflow of the sin that they had engaged in and though god had tried to get his attention he would not listen and they would not listen and this was the way god would respond there would be a a moment in time where God would, would come to Manasseh. Look at what it says in verse 12. It says, when he, little h, Manasseh was in distress, he entreated the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. When he prayed to him, capital H, to the Lord, he... God was moved by his entreaty and heard his supplication and brought him again to Jerusalem to his kingdom. And then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. You've got Manasseh, the old version, sinful, rebellious, leading the people away from God. And then you've got Manasseh humbled, bowing before the, the Lord, begging for mercy, praying to God. And God would restore him, and the difference would be his failure. 
Failure is often a catalyst to a new beginning in our lives, and it's not a fluffy, feel-good, fading-quickly new beginning, that when we bring our failure and we drop it at the cross and we allow God to deal with it, bringing forgiveness to our sin, grace to our mess-ups, what happens is, is that when we leave it there, God not only uses that failure as a catalyst to a new beginning, but He oftentimes uses that failure to re orient our life to himself in a way that did not exist before. We see this in Manasseh's life. Look at verse 14 through verse 17. It says, now after this, after he had failed, after God had humbled him, after he had come back to God on God's terms, not his own, after this, he then built the outer wall of the city of David on the west side of Gihon in the valley even to the entrance of the fish gate. That was a, an entrance into the city of Jerusalem. And he encircled the offel with it, and he made it very high. That would mean nothing to you, perhaps, but these would be changes that could only have been brought by God's work in Manasseh's life. The, look, look at what it says in the next slide. Then he put army commanders in all the fortified cities of Judah. He also removed the foreign gods and the idol from the house of the Lord, as well as all the altars which he had built on the mountain of the house of the Lord and in Jerusalem, and he threw them outside the city. (laughs) He is making sweeping changes here as to what he had done before. It says he set up the altar of the Lord, and he sacrificed peace offerings, thank offerings on it, and he ordered Judah to serve the Lord God of Israel. Now this is what a king is supposed to do when you rule the people of God. He's making all these changes. Verse 17, I love this. Nevertheless, the people still sacrificed in the high places, (laughs) although only to the Lord their God. See, this was a total change that took place in Manasseh's life. And the people of God, the people of Judah, would be the recipients of this change. But the change came not because an angel from heaven visited Manasseh. It wasn't because Manasseh saw a big enough miracle to bring about change in his life. The change came because of his failure. And when God brought him and his failure to himself and Manasseh left his failure and his sin there, that was the hinge on which everything would swing. And it would be that failure that would bring about these changes in Manasseh's life, sweeping changes. This failure would be the catalyst that would change everything for him. And it would be through this failure that he would realize his brokenness, his bankruptcy before God, and it'd be because of his failure that his life would be totally reoriented to God in a way that had never existed before. God did all of that. And he did it ultimately through failure. Which leads us to a third principle, I think, that's so important for us to recognize. That when we bring our failure to God and we drop that failure at the cross and we begin to see God use that failure as a catalyst to something new in our lives and we realize, you know what, there is hope, there is a new beginning and we understand that that new beginning involves us reorienting now our lives to God, here's what we begin to find. Principle number three is that God redefines our failure, completely, totally redefines it so that our failure does not ultimately define us. That's what God does by His grace. Whether it was sin or whether it was a boneheaded move, God meets it with grace. He recrafts it in the life of the believer, the follower of Jesus. And he redefines that failure to the point to where you just may look back one day and thank God for it because of the magnitude of what God started through it in your life.
you're probably wondering what's up with the balloons, whose birthday, right? Two identical balloons, same color, same shape, same size, two different directions. You know the reason these balloons are pointed two different directions? You know, you're smart. It's because of what's inside. One with air, one with helium. <clears throat> Might have been a little too early for the early crowd to really chew on this. I think we've got more awake people here in this service. But could I say that those balloons identical in nature, size, shape, and color are simply the means by which whatever, whatever is inside expresses itself? The way you know what's on the inside is because of the direction of the outside. You with me? And for a lot of people, followers of Jesus who love God with all their heart, they've never left their failure at the cross and moved on in God's grace. And as soon as they begin to gain a little bit of speed, they're reminded of what happened back there, and they fall right back down again. As soon as they begin to taste a little bit of what it means to be forgiven, and they begin to feel closer to God, not that it's all about feelings, but they begin to gain speed and momentum. They begin to think things like, you know what, I want God to use my life like he's never lived, used it before. And the enemy reminds them of what happened back there, where they failed, where they sinned, where they rebelled, where they fell short. And whenever that reminder comes up, what happens is, because they've never left that failure at the cross and moved forward, this is the direction that they head. And yet all over this room this morning, there are people here who have tasted of God's forgiveness. And you've brought your failure and your sin to the cross, and you've left it there. It doesn't mean you have amnesia. You still remember what happened back there. You know your failure, whether it was moral, whether it was family-related, relational, uh, financial, regardless of what it may have been. You know what happened. You remember that it's there, but it doesn't have a hold on you anymore. And the reason was because you left it at the cross when you placed your faith in Jesus. You found grace. You found forgiveness. You found a new beginning. That failure became a new catalyst for you, for something brand new in your life. Oh, not something warm and fluffy. No, this is a real lasting change because it reoriented your life to God like never before. And what's on the inside today, grace and forgiveness and joy and hope and peace and purpose and life, everyone can see. Despite the fact that the failure still exists, what shines the brightest is the grace that God used to replace it. And Manasseh reminds us that every life is prone to fail. Every life is prone to sin. Every life is prone to fall short. Every life is prone to say, I'm in charge. And yet there will always be that moment when God comes knocking. And he'll come with a still, small voice at first. And when we don't listen, he'll come knocking louder. And he'll bring us a message of hope. And he'll bring us a message of of reconciliation he'll bring us a message of peace and of forgiveness and grace oh it's not easy believe and it's not cheap grace we have to surrender our lives leaving our sin behind trusting our lives to jesus to forgive us and make us right but man i'm telling you when we do we can't take away nor undo nor forget about the failures of the past but they can be redefined and you don't have to be the same old person you used to be despite the fall despite the fail you can be new and different God can use you. It's not failure, period. It's failure, dot, dot, dot. There is a next, right? And let me just say, the next is really, really good. 
but it doesn't come automatic. It comes when we bring it and we leave it. And we trust our lives to Jesus and we trust him to forgive us and make us right. And all the junk of the past, we leave it there. We don't get stuck. We don't spin our wheels. We don't lose traction and we don't go back. We move forward because his grace is enough. And failure doesn't have to be final. And God can redefine it so that it doesn't define you. So let me ask you a question this morning as we close. What failure have you been dragging around for far too long? What failure is it? Have you got it in your mind? It may not have been so hard for you to think of it because it comes to mind every day. (laughs) It may have not been so hard for you to be able to put your finger on it because it seems as though that failure doesn't wander too far off. Let me just remind you of the beauty of a passage in Psalm 103. Verses 10 through 12. Take a look at this and we close. The psalmist writes, He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. Aren't you glad for that? Verse 11, he says, For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, which is immeasurable, by the way, as far as the east is from the west so far has he removed our transgressions from us if we had no roof to this building and if we had no floor to this building i could not have string long enough to dictate the difference between a life that is filled with the forgiveness and the grace of god that has new hope and new beginning and the life that has never tasted of such that's what this passage is talking about so what failure do you drag around today what failure has defined you What failure can you not shake? What sin have you been unable to move forward from? And have you ever dropped it at the cross? And have you ever moved forward by trusting that his grace is enough? By looking at the failure and saying, you know what? Today is the new day that God begins to lead. And you begin to let him define you rather than what happened back there. I don't know if it's ever happened for you, but it can today. And you know the good news? It's all true. Let's pray. God, you know that this, uh, this world is filled with bookstores that have books on every shelf about how to start over. And most of them don't work. We don't have to turn on TV and flip stations for long before we find somebody else who has a new idea about how to start over. But none of them really work. And Lord, it's interesting how everybody is talking about the subject of failure in different ways. It's because we've all been there, except for you. And yet it's your way, your book, your word, that only really gives us the the one true remedy for our failure. And that's when we bring it to you. And where we've sinned, we find forgiveness when we yield our lives to Jesus. And where we just blew it because we made a poor choice, God, we find that it's your grace that enables us to see even the best things worked out of our worst choices. And yet, Lord, all over this world, there are churches filled with people just like us who know this in their mind, but they've never really brought their failure and left it at the cross. God, I'd be willing to say, you know certainly better than any of us, how much failure is represented in this room this morning. How much failure gets drug in and drug out of this place on a weekly basis. And Lord, I think I'd be accurate in saying there are a lot of people here that are just tired of that routine. 
Life is too short for us to drag those things around. Far better for us to leave them. Especially with you, a God who is, who's offered himself to take them. We thank you for the cross where it's all paid for. We thank you for grace that covers every bit of it. We thank you for mercy that makes us who we are. And God, we thank you that you're a God who meets us no matter where we've been, no matter where we've done, and who calls us to a new life. A new life where we bury our sin once and for all and where we let you lead, surrendering our lives to Jesus to come in, forgive, and take over. And so God, I pray today for those in this room that have never made that choice, that right where they sit this morning, in whatever words they know to use, that in the quietness of this moment today, that they would invite Jesus, God himself, who died in their place and rose again, to come into their lives, to forgive them, wipe the slate clean, be their Savior, be their Lord from this day forward. And God, for those that have already made that decision, that are still dragging around that failure, Lord, I pray that today will be the day where the direction changes. And they leave it once and for all, learning from it, thanking you for forgiving it and moving forward. So God, a lot of decisions to be made this morning. And God, I pray in these next few moments that we'll get them right. And that we'll leave here, maybe even as different people, <laughs> who look back and even in a strange sort of way, we thank you for those times where we fell because of what you did as a result of it when it became a catalyst for a new beginning that reoriented our lives to your lead in a way like never before. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.